War and Peace, Book Eleven, Chapter Two, read for LibriVox.org by Ernst Patinama. The forces of a dozen European nations burst into Russia. The Russian army and people avoided a collision till Smolensk was reached, and again from Smolensk to Borodino. The French army pushed on to Moscow its goal, its impetus ever increasing as it neared its aim, just as the velocity of a falling body increases as it approaches the earth. Behind it were seven hundred miles of hunger-stricken, hostile country. Ahead were a few dozen miles separating it from its goal. Every soldier in Napoleon's army felt this, and the invasion moved on by its own momentum. The more the Russian army retreated, the more fiercely a spirit of hatred of the enemy flared up, and while it retreated, the army increased and consolidated. At Borodino, a collision took place. Neither army was broken up, but the Russian army retreated immediately after the collision, as inevitably as a ball recoils after colliding with another, having a greater momentum, and with equal inevitability the ball of invasion that had advanced with such momentum rode on for some distance, though the collision had deprived it of all its force. The Russians retreated eighty miles to beyond Moscow, and the French reached Moscow and there came to a standstill. For five weeks after that there was not a single battle. The French did not move. As a bleeding, mortally wounded animal licks its wounds, they remained inert in Moscow for five weeks, and then suddenly, with no fresh reason, fled back. They made a dash for the Kaluga road, and, after a victory, for at Malo Yaroslavitz, the field of conflict again remained theirs, without undertaking a single serious battle, they fled still more rapidly back to Smolensk, beyond Smolensk, beyond the Beryozina, beyond Vilna, and farther still. On the evening of the 26th of August, Kutuzov and the whole Russian army were convinced that the Battle of Borodino was the victory. Kutuzov reported so to the Emperor. He gave orders to prepare for a fresh conflict to finish the enemy, and did this not to deceive anyone, but because he knew that the enemy was beaten, as everyone who had taken part in the battle knew it. But all that evening and next day, reports came in, one after another, of unheard-of losses, of the loss of half the army, and a fresh battle proved physically impossible. It was impossible to give battle before information had been collected, the wounded gathered in, the supplies of ammunition replenished, the slain reckoned up, new officers appointed to replace those who had been killed, and before the men had had food and sleep. And meanwhile, the very next morning after the battle, the French army advanced of itself upon the Russians, carried forward by the force of its own momentum, now seemingly increased in inverse proportion to the square of the distance from its aim. Kutuzov's wish was to attack next day, and the whole army desired to do so. But to make an attack, the wish to do so is not sufficient. There must also be a possibility of doing it, and that possibility did not exist. It was impossible not to retreat a day's march, and then, in the same way, it was impossible not to retreat another, and a third day's march, and at last, 
on the 1st of September, when the army drew near Moscow, despite the strength of the feeling that had arisen in all ranks, the force of circumstances compelled it to retire beyond Moscow, and the troops retired one more last day's march, and abandoned Moscow to the enemy. Four people, accustomed to think that plans of campaign and battles are made by generals, as any one of us, sitting over a map in his study, may imagine how he would have arranged things in this or that battle, the questions present themselves. Why did Kutuzov during the retreat not do this or that? Why did he not take up a position before reaching Fili? Why did he not retire at once by the Kaluga road, abandoning Moscow? And so on. People accustomed to think in that way forget, or do not know, the inevitable conditions which always limit the activities of any commander-in-chief. The activity of a commander-in-chief does not at all resemble the activity we imagine to ourselves when we sit at ease in our studies, examining some campaign on the map, with a certain number of troops on this and that side in a certain known locality, and begin our plans from some given moment. The commander-in-chief is never dealing with the beginning of any event, the position from which we always contemplate it. The commander-in-chief is always in the midst of a series of shifting events, and so he never can, at any moment, consider the whole import of an event that is occurring. Moment by moment, the event is imperceptibly shaping itself, and at every moment of this continuous, uninterrupted shaping of events, the commander-in-chief is in the midst of a most complex play of intrigues, worries, contingencies, authorities, projects, counsels, threats, and deceptions, and is continually obliged to reply to innumerable questions addressed to him, which constantly conflict with one another. Learned military authorities quite seriously tell us that Kutuzov should have moved his army to the Kaluga road long before reaching Fili, and that somebody actually submitted such a proposal to him. But the commander-in-chief, especially at a difficult moment, has always before him not one proposal, but dozens simultaneously, and all these proposals, based on strategics and tactics, contradict each other. The commander-in-chief's business, it would seem, is simply to choose one of these projects, but even that he cannot do. Events and time do not wait. For instance, on the 28th it is suggested to him to cross to the Kaluga road, but just then an adjutant gallops up from Miloradovich, asking whether he is to engage the French or retire. An order must be given him at once, that instant, and the order to retreat carries us past the turn to the Kaluga road. And after the adjutant comes the commissary-general, asking where the stores are to be taken, and the chief of the hospitals asks where the wounded are to go, and a courier from Petersburg brings a letter from the sovereign, which does not admit of the possibility of abandoning Moscow, and the commander-in-chief's rival, the man who is undermining him, and there are always not merely one but several such, presents a new project, diametrically opposed to that of turning to the Kaluga road, and the commander-in-chief himself needs sleep and refreshment to maintain his energy, and a respectable general, who has been overlooked in the distribution of rewards, comes to complain, and the inhabitants of the district pray to be defended, 
and an officer sent to inspect the locality comes in and gives a report quite contrary to what was said by the officer previously sent and a spy a prisoner and a general who has been on reconnaissance all describe the position of the enemy's army differently people accustomed to misunderstand or to forget these inevitable conditions of a commander-in-chief's actions describe to us for instance the position of the army at Philly, and assume that the commander-in-chief could on the first of september quite freely decide whether to abandon moscow or defend it whereas with a russian army less than four miles from moscow no such question existed when had that question been settled at drissa and at smolensk and most palpably of all on the twenty fourth of august at shevardino and on the twenty sixth at borodino and each day and hour and minute of the retreat from borodino to fili end of chapter two recording by ernst patinama amsterdam the netherlands this recording is in the public domain